Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 33 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 115 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended January 26, 2019. Welcome. Well, we always said on this podcast that when things were coming towards an end, the list would get longer and the chaos would increase. And here we are, folks, in week 115, the longest government shutdown in history coming to an end, but only after so many signs that our government was coming apart or the the functions that our government provided and the American people were suffering. Um, Also, a lot of progress this week on things related to the Mueller probe and investigations. This is a week that Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker, truly asserted herself and showed Trump who was boss. We're going to be talking about that as well. Um, And again, I, you know, it's just this list had over 190 items. So, what we're living in now, when we listen back to this podcast decades from now, and we're thinking about what this week felt like, every day feels like we're living in chaos. Every day we're wondering if the man who is running our country, who up until Nancy Pelosi took over, was pretty much doing so without any pushback, what his intentions were and who could stop him and whether he had America's interests at heart. And again, with this shutdown and some of the other surrounding news we're going to talk about this week, you know, again, our country um, is suffering in so many ways and so many ways our country has been turned against one another. So when you step back and you think, who is winning here? It's not the American people winning, folks. Russia is winning. So we're going to get into it. Um, and, And the first, I just want to start off with some interesting information from the Washington Post, who we've quoted their fact checking. Uh, and they've been tracking how Trump's false and misleading claims. And at the two year mark in office, he's made a grand total of 8,158 false or misleading claims. But of note here, of that 8,000 plus, more than 6,000 were in the second year alone. So again, as we've been talking about, things are escalating. The lies are escalating. The chaos is escalating. Trump averaged 5.9 false or misleading claims per day in his first year in office. Compare that to almost triple in the second year, 16.5 false or misleading claims per day. The biggest topic, immigration. That was front and center as well with this government shutdown. And what does immigration represent? Well, let's step back and think about who Donald Trump was when he started his campaign in his very first speech when he talked about Mexican rapists. This man has started off and the whole time been consistent about being racist and using racism and xenophobia to keep his base together. So as we started off this week, last Saturday, Trump was giving a 13-minute speech in which he offered a three-year reprieve on his attempts to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, also known as DACA, and temporary protected status in exchange for $5.7 billion for his wall. The proposal was put together by a small group of Trump insiders without consulting Democrats. So folks, usually if you negotiate, you have the other side at the table. This is just Trump has no idea what he's doing. House Speaker Pelosi called it a non-starter before he even gave the speech and vowed to pass legislation in the coming week to reopen the government. The Washington Post reported Trump's speech that he gave Saturday when he showed no empathy. By the way, that was noteworthy. Many who observed that speech were like, huh, does he feel anything for any of the people he's impacted? No. The Washington Post reported Trump's speech and handling of the shutdown have accentuated traits of his first time in office. Uh, One is a shortage of empathy, also difficulty accepting responsibility, and a desire for revenge against political foes. Trump has approached the shutdown like a public relations challenge. White House aides acknowledge he is losing the battle of public opinion 
One friend said that even if his base is intact, he is ripping the nation apart. That's a really important statement, folks. Trump has also drawn criticism for his competence as an executive. West Wing aides acknowledged they had no contingency plans for the shutdown and are learning about problems at agencies through reporting in real time. And then there's the foreign policy aspect. On Sunday, Brett McGurk, who recently resigned after Mattis resigned, who was a former U.S. envoy to fight against ISIS, um, said on Face the Nation that there is no plan for what comes after troops are withdrawn in Syria. So as much as we're seeing incompetence at home, we also are seeing incompetence and inconsistency in our foreign policy. On Sunday, though, amid trade negotiations between the two countries, China granted Ivanka Trump preliminary approval for another five trademarks. The applications were filed in 2016 and 2017. So even if our foreign policy and our trade policy is a mess, they're still cashing in. On Sunday, Trump tweeted, quote, the media is not giving us credit for the tremendous progress we have made with North Korea, adding he's looking forward to meeting with Chairman Kim at the end of February. On Tuesday, NBC News reported, according to a report from Beyond Parallel, a project sponsored by a defense think tank, North Korea has as many as 20 undisclosed missile sites in the country. Reportedly, some Trump officials and U.S. allies are nervous because they know so little about what Trump and Kim Jong-un talked about in Singapore and are concerned about what Trump might agree to next. On Sunday, Rudy Giuliani back in the news this week. Rudy Giuliani told Meet the Press that discussions to build a Trump Tower in Moscow remained an active proposal as late as November 2016. Huh? That's months later than Trump previously publicly admitted. Giuliani said Trump can, quote, remember having conversations with Michael Cohen throughout 2016. Cohen admitted he worked on the project through June 2016 after telling Congress the talks ended January 2016 in his testimony. On Sunday, Giuliani told the Times that Trump had said discussions about the project were, quote, going on from the day I announced to the day I won. Again, this is all news being made by Trump's attorney. On Monday, Giuliani tried to walk back his comments in a statement saying his remarks about discussions between Trump and Cohen, quote, were hypothetical and not based on conversations I had with the president. Hours later, in an interview with The New Yorker, Giuliani said, quote, I have been through all the tapes of conversations between Trump and Cohen. The existence of tapes had not been previously discussed. When pressed about the tapes in the interview, Giuliani responded, quote, I shouldn't have said tapes adding, no tapes. Well, I listened to tapes, but none of them concerned this. Vanity Fair reported Trump is furious about Giuliani's recent botched press appearances. Reportedly, Trump is being advised by Ivanka and Jared and others to fire Giuliani before he does more damage. And then this gem from AP. AP reported that Trump's close allies have urged him to bench Giuliani with some suggesting he'd be barred from evening interviews because of concerns that he was going on TV after drinking. <laughs> A drunk Rudy. All right. On Monday, uh, and this is an important story, folks. We've been talking about the U.S. sanctions and this weird focus from the Treasury Department on lifting sanctions against Oleg Deripaska's companies. We've heard about Oleg Deripaska in a lot of our weekly podcasts, and he's a very frequent subject of the weekly list. He's ties to Manafort as well. So this is a story that got very little attention in the chaos, but is a really important story. So listen in. On Monday, the New York Times reported that a confidential document titled Terms of Removal uh, and signed by representatives of Oleg Deripaska and the Treasury Department is significantly different than what has been publicly shared. The Treasury Department described the broad contours of the agreement in a letter to Congress, which was released publicly. However, major details were not provided to Congress by our own Treasury Department, which voted last week. 
the Congress voted, as we know, the House voted to keep the sanctions. The Senate voted to allow them to be lifted. The deal is significantly less punitive and contains provisions that free Darius Pasca from hundreds of millions of dollars in debt while leaving him and his allies with majority ownership of his important companies. Despite the Treasury Department indicating that Darius Pasca had lowered his stake in the sanctioned companies to below 50% threshold to supposedly 44.95%, the document reveals the actual ownership stake including what he has, what his family members have, is 57%. Also, these are names that we've discussed before, Victor Vesklerberg, who attracted Mueller's attention, has a stake in Darius Paska's empire, as does Len Blavnatik, a Ukrainian-born billionaire who donated $1 million to Trump's inauguration. On Monday, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny announced he has heard audio recordings of Derek Pasca's associates plotting to have Anastasia Vunik arrested. She was supposed to be deported when released from prison in Thailand to her home in Belarus, but instead she was arrested during her layover at Moscow in connection with a prostitution case. On Tuesday, she, this is the same woman, by the way, who said she had evidence <coughs> that Russia interfered in the U.S. election based on tapes that she had of Darius Pasca. Uh, she was freed from Russian police custody. Task News reported she remains a suspect in an unrelated criminal case. So Russia is not done with her. On Tuesday, ABC News reported congressional investigators are looking into Robert Forsman, another new name now vice chairman of UBS's investment arm, who lived for years in Moscow and led a $3 billion Russian investment fund. Forsman, who has ties to the Kremlin, sought a sit-down with Trump through the producer of The Apprentice, Mark Burnett, during the transition period. Burnett helped him get a meeting with Tom Barak. The meeting with Barak was canceled, however, but Forsman continued to pursue a role on Trump's team by meeting with Michael Flynn. However, just as a side note, Forsman did not support Trump in the primary or the general election. So he's just trying to get, he's a friend of, of Russia, he's trying to get into the Trump transition team. Records also show Forsman had a December 2016 meeting with Sergei Gorkov, chairman of the state-owned Russian Development Bank. Gorkov also flew in for one day in December for a meeting with Jared Kushner. On Tuesday, also in the related to the Mueller probe, the Supreme Court allowed the mystery foreign government-owned company thought to be part of Mueller's probe to file appeal papers under seal. On Saturday, and this is the case, this was the picture in week 114, these Cummington High School children. A lot of tumult this week, but it was it's sort of a Rorschach's test for what you believe is happening in our country, what these make America great again, red caps mean, and the divide that our country has and continues to be stoked by Trump. Um, there was a lot of discussion about that video. Another video was released. Um, so I'm going to just start off how we, after it being the picture in week 114, how we left it last week, some of the things that happened this week. On Saturday, the Diocese of coming, and I, I'm, I just want to add, I'm adding this in because it brought Trump into the fray, how abnormal this is. It's a story that probably should never have gotten as big as it did, but with him involved, it did get that big. On Saturday, the, di the Diocese of Covington criticized any students involved in taunting Native Americans at the Indigenous People's March, adding the matter is under investigation and students could be expelled. So that's how we started the week. Nathan Phillips, a veteran in the indigenous rights movement, said he felt threatened by the teens. The indigenous people's movement called the incident emblematic of our discourse in Trump's America. And that to me is the point of the whole thing. You know, as we talked about in week 114, last week's episode, Trump makes openly, openly racist comments about Elizabeth Warren, calling her Pocahontas and invoking Wounded Knee, which was a massacre that our Congress apologized to Native Americans for. And then we have this happening. 
So to me, that is the crux of it, emblematic of our discourse in Trump's America. Now, on Monday, USA Today reported the Samna family hired Louisville public relations firm Runswich PR, which was instrumental in a three-page statement in which Salmon defended his actions and also provided an extended video. On, Trump, on Monday, Trump got involved and he tweeted, looks like Nick Sandman and Covington Catholic students were treated unfairly with early judgments proving to be false, smeared by media. He also misspelled the boy's name, but we're used to that. Uh, the tweet was sent during Fox News host Tucker Carlson's show, who Trump tweeted, quoted in a tweet saying, quote, new footage shows the media was wrong about teens encounter with Native American. On Tuesday in the morning, Trump again tweeted on Covington, invoking his common anti-media bias, saying, quote, Nick Sandman and the students of Covington have become symbols of fake news and how evil it can be. I have to say, folks, I didn't even know the boy's name until Trump started tweeting it. So it, it became a big story. I mentioned Trump's involvement. Now we will continue with other everyday racism in America. ICE arrested Carmen Puerto Diaz at a green card interview with her husband, Diaz. P Carmen is five months pregnant into a high-risk pregnancy and was denied medication for days. She was later released after public outrage, and we helped with that. Thank you for everyone who called ICE, uh, all my followers on Twitter and Facebook. We, we got her release, which was amazing. The Star Tribune reported coach Mike Walker, whose high school team is predominantly black, pulled out of an MLK Day game in Minneapolis, citing the host team had a front row Trump 2020 banner last time they played. On Monday, Mark Bartlett, 51, was arrested in Florida after a video showed him drawing a gun and yelling racial slurs at a group of black Americans participating in an anti-gun violence event on MLK Day. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to allow Trump's transgender military ban to proceed, clearing the way for it to go into effect while lower courts hear additional arguments. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court took no action on Trump's regime's appeal in the Dreamers case, leaving the program in place and signaling that the court will not hear the regime's challenge in the current term. Trump, who tried to end the program in 2017, said in a cabinet meeting this month that he had expected to use the victory in the Supreme Court as leverage in negotiating with Democrats on immigration. Ugh. On Tuesday, Trump's Justice Department said it plans to ask the Supreme Court to take up hearing the case on adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census on an expedited basis in order to decide the case by June. On Tuesday, the day after Senator Kamala Harris announced her 2020 presidential run on MLK Day, Trump supporters rekindled birtherism, claiming she's not eligible to run because her parents were not born in the U.S. Harris was born in Oakland, but she's black, so they're going to have a field day. The racism has already started, folks. On Wednesday, James Jackson, a 30-year-old white supremacist, pleaded guilty to killing a black man with a sword in New York. Jackson had planned to carry out many attacks against black men. Jackson picked New York because it's, quote, the media capital of the world, and he wanted to make a statement. The criminal complaint states Jackson was, quote, angered by black men mixing with white women. On Wednesday, Colorado police arrested Christopher Cleary, 27 years old, who threatened to kill as many girls as I see because he is a virgin and had been rejected by women multiple times. On Wednesday, the Trump regime granted a waiver to give Miracle Hill Ministries in South Carolina permission to participate in a federal-funded foster care program, even though the group openly discriminates. Miracle Hill does not permit adoption by LGBTQ or non-Christian parents. The waiver overrides an Obama-era regulation barring groups that discriminate on the basis of religion from receiving federal money. 
On Thursday, newly appointed Florida Secretary of State Michael Ortel resigned after photos emerged of him posing as a Hurricane Katrina victim in blackface at a private Halloween party 14 years ago. On Thursday, NBC News reported the Trump regime plans to begin turning asylum seekers back at the southern border starting on Friday to wait in Mexico until under a new policy designed to crack down on immigration. Customs and Border Protection officers will begin turning back asylum seekers from Central America uh, that are coming in from Tijuana, where thousands are waiting in poor conditions. Currently, immigrants who pass under the credible fear interview are allowed to remain in the U.S. to see an immigration judge. The new policy, dubbed Migration Protection Policy, is likely to be sued by advocates. Beginning Friday, asylum seekers will be sent back to Tijuana with a notice to appear in court in San Diego. On their court dates, ICE will provide transportation from the port of entry to immigration court. Again, folks, this is not part of our law. The regime is just unilaterally doing these things. So I mentioned MLK Day was this week. So what did Trump do on MLK Day? He marked the day with a two-minute visit to Washington's MLK Jr. Memorial. This was Trump's only public event for the day. On Monday, National Review reported that Representative Joe Neguse said the House Judiciary Committee will likely investigate whether Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh committed perjury during his confirmation hearing. On Tuesday, a North Carolina Superior Court judge denied Republican Mark Harris's request to certify the still-disputed 9th District congressional race, saying the Board of Elections should complete its investigation. On Tuesday, the House voted 357 to 22 on legislation to prevent Trump from pulling out of NATO. After reports that we talked about last week that Trump is considering pulling out had considered it during 2018. The bill will now move to the Senate. But folks, I just bring that up because here we are, and Trump has been doing it since week one of the list. Trump repeatedly is trying to have our, is alienating our allies and trying to move us out of NATO, which benefits who? Vladimir Putin. On Wednesday, Trump backed a coup in Venezuela by opposition leader Juan Guado, the 35-year-old National Assembly leader. President Nicolas Maduro dismissed Guado's claim to the presidency. Maduro responded by giving American diplomats 72 hours to leave the country with a derisive be gone and accused Trump of plotting to overthrow him. The U.S. said it would ignore the deadline. On Tuesday, as Congress returned to session on day 32 of the shutdown, Trump tweeted, quote, Without a wall, our country can never have border or national security, adding, finally must be done. No cave. Speaker Pelosi told reporters, quote, we cannot have the president every time he has an objection to say, I'll shut down the government until you come to my way of thinking. If we hold the employees hostage now, they're hostage forever. And I'm leaving Pelosi's quotes in the list because she's just was masterful through this whole chapter. The Transportation Security Association reported TSA employees called out at a national rate of 10% on Sunday, a record high, and a jump from 3.1% one year ago on the same weekend, MLK weekend. Again, folks, these people have not been paid. They missed their first paycheck two weeks ago, and they were about to miss their second paycheck this week. A TSA spokesperson told ABC News, we are in, quote, uncharted territory. Employees say they are unable to continue to work unpaid. And on February 1st, when rent and mortgages are due, things will get worse. On Tuesday, Politico reported furlough federal workers are running up credit card debt, taking out loans, flocking to pawn shops, finding temporary work, and asking friends and family to help. A spokesperson for the Consumer Bankers Association, which represents retail lenders, said calls for help have picked up tenfold 
and will increase further nearing February 1st, again, when mortgage and rent payments are due. <clears throat> On Tuesday, a report issued by the FBI Agents Association, the group representing 13,000 FBI agents, said the shutdown has impeded the agency's effort to crack down on child trafficking, violent crime, and terrorism. So ironically, Trump is supposedly doing this to keep us safe, and the FBI, the TSA, are telling us we're not safe. <laughs> the 72 report by the FBI Agents Association said the FBI has been unable to issue grand jury subpoenas and indictments in several cases. Field offices have run out of basic supplies like copy paper, forensic supplies, and DNA swab kits. On Tuesday, the State Department canceled, ironically, the 16th International Export Control and Border Security Conference, focused on border security and scheduled to take place in Scotland in mid-February, citing the shutdown. On Tuesday, Trump tweeted that he told Press Secretary Sarah Sanders not to bother with giving formal press briefings from the podium anymore, saying the press covers her so rudely and inaccurately. This is pretty alarming, folks, but it is also a hallmark of authoritarianism, yeah, lack propaganda, but lack of access to information. Sanders has not taken questions from the podium since December 18th, and she appeared just once in September, November, and December. The number of press briefings has been steadily declining since Trump took office. According to data compiled by the American Presidency Project, in 2018, the Trump regime averaged less than five press briefings per month, fewer than any president in recent history. CNN reported the lack of briefings is also a result of an ongoing power struggle for control between Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, Bill Schein, Kellyanne Conway, and Mercedes Schlapp on the communications team that has been going on for months. Also, staffing of the White House press office has dwindled. Roles of many younger press aides who have departed, including assistant press secretary, deputy press secretary, remain unfilled. Unlike past administrations, there's been no rush for to fill candidates in the empty seats. Instead, the White House, uh, in, instead of hiring for those, the Trump campaign is actively hiring for the 2020 re-election. So, again, <clears throat> it's all about Trump. That's where the efforts are going. He's working on his 2020 re-election. On Tuesday, Wes Mitchell, the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasia Affairs, resigned effective February. The resignation comes at a time when Europeans are questioning Trump's commitment to alliances. Mitchell's departure creates another Assistant Secretary of State vacancy at the State Department. Before his resignation, six of the 24 spots have a nominee awaiting Senate confirmation. Mitchell has, was the first Assistant Secretary of State under Trump. On Tuesday, Politico reported Shahira Knight, Trump's Legislative Affairs Director, who acts as his liaison to Congress, is planning to leave in the coming months as well, in what insiders say is a thankless job. So just note the number of people leaving, the roles going unfilled, lack of access to information. Slate reported the Trump regime quietly, the department, the Trump regime's Department of Justice quietly, um, their Office on Violence Against Women changed the definition of domestic violence last April with little notice, making the definition substantially more limited. Under the new definition, only harms that constitute a felony or misdemeanor crime may be called domestic violence excluding critical components of the phenomenon, like the dynamics of power and control. Rolling Stone reported Susan Combs, Trump's unconfirmed appointee who is leading the Interior Department's reorganization, earned almost $2.1 in recent years from oil companies who stand to benefit. So that worked out well. Combs, who was nominated by Trump in July 2017, has also been fiercely opposed to protecting endangered species during her time in Texas government, a position in line with oil and gas industry. On Thursday, California Assemblyman Brian Menchkin, who serves in a conservative stronghold, announced he would switch parties and become a Democrat, blaming Trump's behavior and divisiveness. 
On Thursday, the Golden State Warriors made their annual trip to Washington, D.C. as NBA champions. Rather than visit the White House, the team was seen in photos visiting with former President Barack Obama. On Wednesday, a CBS News poll found that 71% of Americans do not believe that Trump's wall is worth a government shutdown, so 7 in 10 Americans, while just 28% believe it is. The poll found 47% believe Pelosi is doing a better job handling shutdown negotiations to 35% for Trump. Also, 60% believe the shutdown is causing serious problems. Trump's approval fell three points from November down to 36% in the CBS poll, while 59% of Americans disapprove, a high for him in his time in office by CBS News polling. On Wednesday, a Politico Morning Consult poll found 57% of Americans believe it is likely that Russia has compromising information on Trump, while just 31% do not think it is likely. I'm going to say that again, folks. This is a Politico Morning Consult poll. Basically, two-thirds of Americans almost believe Russia has compromising information on Donald Trump. That's pretty shocking. More polls just to give you a feel of what it felt like this week and what our country was thinking. On Wednesday, an AP NORC poll found Trump's approval at a year-long low of 34%, down from 42% in December. Trump's standing with independence is among its lowest point in his time in office. The poll also found that 70% of women and independents disapprove of Trump, and 76% of college graduates disapprove as well. The poll also found that 60% of Americans blame Trump for the government shutdown, while just 31% blame congressional Democrats, and 36% blame congressional Republicans. So that's where we were Wednesday in polling. Trump started Wednesday in with unveiling a new slogan in the early morning, tweeting in capital letters, build a wall and crime will fall, adding, this is the new phrase for two years until the wall is finished, and use it and pray. Minutes later, Trump again tweeted, build a wall and crime will fall. And again in the afternoon, Trump tweeted, even Trump haters like MSNBC acknowledge, you build a wall and crime will fall. On Wednesday, day 33 of the shutdown, led by several unions that represent furloughed federal workers and out-of-work contractors, Hundreds of workers staged a sit-in inside the Hart Senate office building. Protesters stood in silence for 33 minutes, holding styrofoam plates with messages like, Jobs, not walls. We'll work for pay. And please let us work. The empty plates signified the need to feed their families. After the silence, protesters shouted, No more food banks, and they need paychecks. Some staged a sit-in outside senators' offices and demanded a meeting with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. When McConnell's office staff refused, a dozen took seats in the hallway outside his office and were later pulled up from the floor and arrested, their arms tied with behind their backs by U.S. Capitol Police. Shameful. On Wednesday, Mitch McConnell blocked a bill to temporarily reopen the Department of Homeland Security for the fourth time. He has blocked the House's DHS, DHS bill from coming to the floor in, in all four times. He has also blocked legislation three times that would have opened other departments and agencies, arguing it would be a show vote because Trump will not sign it. On Wednesday, the Washington Post reported acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney has pressed agency heads to provide him with a list by Friday of programs which would be impacted if the shutdown lasts until March or April. Mulvaney's request is the first known by a top White House official for a broad accounting of the spreading impact of the shutdown. So far, officials have been focusing on the wait times at airports, but no other programs. Officials are already grappling with keeping their agencies functioning as unpaid workers refuse to show up. Over months, the impact is expected to extend to tens of millions of Americans who rely on government services. And I just want to add in here, people aren't showing up to work because they're living paycheck to paycheck and they need to find other work in order to pay the bills. 
or they can't afford childcare and to go to work for free. Federal workers will miss their second paycheck on Friday. Unions are filing legal actions against the regime for making employees work without pay. Agencies are still trying to understand the scope of their problems. Other impacts include the federal court system is likely to halt major operations after February 1, and the Department of Agriculture will run out of funding to pay food stamp benefits in March to 40 million Americans. On Wednesday, a joint statement by air traffic controllers, pilots, and flight attendants unions said, quote, we have a growing concern for the safety and security of our members, our airlines, and the traveling public. The 130,000 aviation professionals said, quote, we cannot even calculate the level of risk currently at play, nor predict the point at which the entire system will break, adding it is unprecedented. On Wednesday, five bipartisan former secretaries of Department of Homeland Security, including John Kelly, sent a letter to Trump and Congress calling for an end to the shutdown, calling it unconscionable. The letter said, quote, DHS employees who protect the traveling public, investigate and counter terrorism and protect cr critical infrastructure should not have to rely on charitable generosity of others. On Thursday, former Secretary Jay Johnson said at an event, quote, from a security standpoint, we are letting our guard down, adding the very people we depend on for security are made to suffer. However, on Monday, Lara Trump, campaign advisor to Trump and wife of Eric Trump, told Bull TV, federal workers are going through, quote, a little bit of pain, but that Trump's wall, quote, is so much bigger than any one person. Kevin Hassett, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for Trump, appeared to compare the showdown to vacation saying it would leave workers, quote, better off since they will receive back pay without having to report to work, which also isn't true. They are going to work, many of them. On Thursday, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross told CNBC, quote, I don't really understand why federal workers need to go to food banks, adding, quote, these folks will get back pay once this whole thing gets settled. Ross also said, it's kind of disappointing that the air traffic controllers are calling in sick. The anchors said it's because they cannot support their families. Ross responded, they eventually are going to get paid. On Thursday, Pelosi took a swipe at Ross and Trump, telling reporters, I don't know if it's let them eat cake. I don't know if it's a let them eat cake kind of attitude or call your father for money or this character building for you. It is all going to. It is not going to end well. So again, these comments just show an utter lack of any empathy or feeling for what average Americans are experiencing. And it's almost as if we have a royal family and oligarchs in charge of our country. Minutes later, after he was watching Pelosi's press conference, Trump tweeted, "Quote: Nancy just said she doesn't understand why." Very simple, without a wall, it all doesn't work, adding, we will not cave. So that was the action Wednesday. And then while this is going on, on Wednesday, Michael Cohen indefinitely postponed his scheduled February 7th testimony to Congress with his attorney, Lenny Davis, citing verbal attacks by Trump, including unspecified threats against Cohen's family. Trump allies representatives Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows also sent letters to Cohen's attorney suggesting Cohen would face aggressive questioning from House Republicans. Trump's allies have privately said Cohen's disclosures are one of the most significant threats to Trump. Cohen has spent more than 70 hours in interviews with investigators for the Southern District of New York and with Mueller's team. On Wednesday, committee chairs Representative Elijah Cummings and Adam Schiff said they understood Cohen's concerns for his family's safety and repeated their earlier warnings against efforts to intimidate witnesses. On Thursday, in an early morning tweet, Trump called Cohen a, quote, bad lawyer who, quote, sadly will not be testifying before Congress, adding Cohen, quote, is using the lawyer of crooked Hillary Clinton to represent him. 
That lawyer, Lanny Davis, in an interview on Thursday, accused Giuliani of witness tampering for recent comments he made about Cohen's father-in-law, suggesting he might have ties to organized crime. So this is happening in real time, and very publicly, Trump and his allies are threatening Cohen, and we're publicly seeing witness tampering. On Thursday, the Senate Intelligence Committee issued a subpoena for Cohen to appear privately before the panel next month and correct false testimony he delivered last year about the Trump Tower Moscow project. On Wednesday, House Committee Chairs Representative Maxine Waters and Adam Schiff said they are planning to launch a joint investigation of, ding, 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 Deutsche Bank over its business dealings with Trump. Folks, if you've been following me on social media or come to my book events, I always say watch these two things, Deutsche Bank and Cambridge Analytica. There's nothing that gets Trump more worked up than when they go after Deutsche Bank or it gets mentioned. And I just have to say, we're going to see what comes of this. We have two committee chairs now with the Democrats in power that are making inquiries to Deutsche Bank. Let's not forget that when no other bank would lend to Trump because of his bankruptcies, Deutsche Bank, who is also known as the global laundromat for Russian money, lent $300 million to him, and month before the election, led hundreds of millions to Jared Kushner for a property in New York to refinance it, and it was a property he had bought from Leviev, also known as the Russian King of Diamonds. So stay tuned on Deutsche Bank. Um... Waters actually had already asked Deutsche Bank for details of its handling of Trump's accounts in May of 2017 in our weekly list. We talked about that, but the bank refused to cooperate, citing privacy. She now has subpoena power as chair of the House Financial Services Committee. On Thursday, Deutsche Bank AG said it received an inquiry from the two committee chairs and said they are in talks with the banks. Representative Waters and Schiff are in talks with the banks and expect its cooperation in its in their inquiry. More fun in the House. On Wednesday, in a letter sent by committee chair Representative Elijah Cummings to the White House Counsel, the House Oversight Committee announced it will investigate White House security clearances. The letter also states the investigation will look into why the regime is, quote, defying federal law by failing to provide the Congress information about its secret clearance process required by the Secret Act. The letter seeks information about security clearance issued for Jared Kushner, John Bolton, Michael Flynn, Michael Flynn Jr., KT McFarlane, Rob Porter, Robin Townley, John McAtee, and Sebastian Gorka. Cummings said he also sent a letter to the National Rifle Association about Bolton, seeking information about his contacts with Maria Butina. Democrats vowed to subpoena Trump if documents are not turned over. So we're finally seeing some accountability, folks. We did important work in this midterms, putting the House in the hands of Democrats. On Thursday, NBC News reported Jared Kushner's application for top security clearance was actually rejected by two career White House security specialists but was overruled by their supervisor, Carl Klein. New name for us. Klein became the director of personal security office in the executive office of the president in May 2017. Kushner was one of at least 30 cases in which he overruled career security experts approving top security clearance. The FBI background check on Kushner raised concern about his potential foreign influence on him, citing questions about his family business, his foreign contacts, his foreign travel, and meetings during the campaign. Not only did Klein give him top security clearance, but he recommended to the CIA that Kushner be granted sensitive, compartmented information, known as SCI clearance. CIA officials wondered how Kushner was granted top security clearance and denied the SCI request. On Thursday, Trump tweeted promotion of a book by conservative commentator Doug Weed, who appeared on Fox and Friends that morning, calling Trump the most accessible president in history. Trump also quoted Weed tweeting, 
This is everything FDR dreamed about, the New Deal to put America back to work. Think of LBJ. He gave people food stamps and welfare. Donald Trump's giving them a job. Trump also repeated his new slogan, tweeting, Without a wall, there can be no safety and security at the border or for the USA. Build the wall and crime will fall. On Thursday, the Senate rejected dueling proposals to end the shutdown. The Senate voted 52-44 to reject House-backed legislation that would fund the government through February 8th, with six Republicans joining the Democrats. The Senate also voted down Trump's proposal that he made last Saturday in his 13-minute speech by a 50-47 to vote. So, folks, the irony of this, Mitch McConnell, who refused to bring any of these other bills to the floor because he said Trump would sign them, then brings two bills to the floor that he knew wouldn't pass, including one that would not pass through the House. So he was sort of exposed for you know, his hypocrisy and his incompetence in this whole government shutdown as well. On Thursday, in an unplanned evening press availability, Trump claimed, quote, in fact, I do see a lot of Democrats, almost all of them are breaking, saying walls are good, walls are good. This is actually a false statement, as we just talked about. Democrats did not break. Trump floated the idea of a prorated down payment for his wall to reopen the government. Speaker Pelosi scoffed at the idea being discussed in the Senate and added of Trump, I don't think he knows what he wants. Trump threatened to declare, again, a national emergency, saying, quote, I have other alternatives and adding a lot of people who want this to happen. The military wants this to happen. This is a virtual invasion of our country. Trump also defended Wilbur Ross, saying perhaps he could have said it differently and claiming without evidence that grocery stores and banks are working along with furloughed federal workers. Again, that's not true. On Thursday, CNN reported the White House is preparing a draft proclamation for Trump to declare a national emergency. The questions of legality and legal challenges are the main holdups in acting. The draft states, quote, the massive amount of aliens who unlawfully entered the United States each day is a direct threat to the safety and security of our nation and constitutes a national emergency. Almost $7 billion of possible funding for the wall has been identified, $681 million in Treasury forfeiture funds, $3.6 billion in military construction, $3 billion in Pentagon civil work funds, and $200 million in DHS funds. On Thursday, Trump attacked Michael D'Antonio, a commentator and Trump biographer, for playing his biggest con of all on fake news CNN. So this is, that was Thursday. We woke up Friday. Friday was a fun day. There are always fun days. Friday, this Friday, this week was an indictment Friday, our favorite Friday. On Friday, in an early morning raid, FBI agents arrested Roger Stone at his home in Fort Lauderdale. In Mueller's team 24-page document, Stone was indicted on seven counts of lying, obstruction, and witness tampering. CNN video footage showed FBI agent at Stone's door, saying FBI opened the door before adding FBI warrant. The FBI agents who arrested Stone were working without pay given the government shutdown of all the ironies. The indictment said Stone sought stolen emails from WikiLeaks that could damage Trump's opponent. In July 2018, Mueller indicted 12 Russians of orchestrating the hacks and distributing documents to WikiLeaks. The indictment also notes, before Stone's actions in the summer of 2016, the Democratic National Committee had already announced publicly it had been attacked by Russia. So implying that Stone knew that Russia, the emails were coming from Russia. The indictment said, quote, and this is important, a senior campaign official was directed to contact Stone about the releases by Organization One, which is thought to be WikiLeaks. It was unclear who directed the senior campaign official, but just tripped down memory lane. There were very few people that were in charge in this campaign. It's Trump, his sons. The person who would have instructed this senior official to act, we still don't know, but it was somebody clearly very senior, if not a family member or Trump, someone extremely senior on the campaign. 
After WikiLeaks released its first set of Clinton campaign emails on October 7th, 2016, Stone received a text from a, an associate of the high-ranking Trump campaign official saying, well done. In an October 2016 email to Steve Bannon, then campaign chief executive, Stone implied he had information about WikiLeaks plans, but it was not clear if Bannon is the high-ranking official and his lawyer refused to comment. So again, we could be seeing Bannon in the chain of command for getting these stolen emails and getting information on them. Stone tried to cover up what he had done by lying to Congress. He also persuade, tried to persuade another witness identified as person two, thought to be Randy Credico, to refuse to talk to the House Intelligence Committee. Again, that's witness tampering. Jerome Corsi confirmed to CNN that he is person one in the indictment and that the statement about him in the indictments are accurate. Corsi also said what the indictment contains confirms I did nothing wrong. After Stone's arrest, Trump tweeted, quote, greatest witch hunt in the history of our country, no collusion. Trump also tweeted, who alerted CNN to be there? Echoing a tweet by former Fox News host Greta Van Susteren, who falsely claimed the FBI had tipped off CNN to cover Stone's arrest. CNN monitored grand jury activity. Stone appeared in Fort Lauderdale court with steel shackles on his wrists and ankles Friday morning. He was later released on a board, on a bond. On the courthouse steps, he made the V for victory gesture used by Richard Nixon. And that is the photo for week 115. Stone said, there is no circumstance whatsoever under which I will bear false witness against the president, nor will I make up lies to ease the pressure on myself. The crowd booed and chanted, lock him up. <laughs> With Stone's indictment, the Mueller probe has now led to charges against 34 people and guilty pleas by six Trump associates and advisors. Stone got his start in politics working for Nixon's 1972 re-election campaign. Agents also moved to search Stone's New York City apartment. His case was assigned to U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson of the District of Columbia, who's also hearing Paul Manafort's case. On Friday, House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff said his committee will publicly release all interview transcripts from its Russia probe to Mueller, citing Stone as the second witness to be indicted for lying. On Friday, the Nixon Foundation distanced itself from Stone, tweeting during his time as a college student, Stone was a junior scheduler on the Nixon re-election campaign. Mr. Stone was not a campaign aide or advisor. So even Richard Nixon's legacy is trying to distance itself from Roger Stone. On Friday, Mueller's team said in court that Manafort should not get any credit for cooperating when he is sentenced on February 8th saying multiple discernible lies were not instances of mere memory lapses. So that was part of the action. The other action that was happening at the same time on this crazy Friday this week. On Friday, TSA Administrator David Peckers tweeted that the department had scraped together funds from leftover from last year to make a partial payment to TSA screeners for the first two weeks of the shutdown. On Friday, the Washington Post reported at least 14,000 of the 26,000 unpaid IRS employees whose work includes processing and call centers did not show up this week after being called back. On Friday, the Federal Aviation Administration announced it was restricting flights into and out of New York's LaGuardia Airport, saying there were not enough air traffic controllers to manage flight safety. Within hours, delays at LaGuardia had a ripple effect on other East Coast airports. The FAA's action was the first time staffing shortages hit air traffic control centers during the shutdown. And again, as we've noted, that was something that the Trump regime was closely monitoring. On Friday, an NBC News Washington Post poll found Trump's approval at 37%, one point off the low of his first two years as 60% of Americans disapprove of his handling of the shutdown. 
Trump's two-year average approval rating of 38% is the lowest on record for a president in the 72 years of polling. Previously, the average approval rate was 61%. That's, again, versus 38% for Trump. And this was interesting. The poll found that Trump's approval among women had dropped to a new low of 27%. That's down nine points from November, while 49% of men approve of Trump. So this is what was happening Friday morning. Roger Stone's being arrested by the FBI and he's in shackles. We're hearing LaGuardia's flights are delayed and it's having an impact, a ripple impact. New polls are coming out showing terrible results for Trump. Shortly after the FAA's action, the White House announced Trump would address the press from the Rose Garden. In the afternoon, cabinet officials and White House aides lined the sides and applauded him as he spoke. Trump claimed victory, saying he was very proud to announce what he called a deal to end the shutdown and reopen the federal government. The government would reopen for three weeks with no funding for his wall. So my tweet was he negotiated with himself to cave. So basically Trump caved on Friday and it appeared to be because of the flights being canceled. And that was what they were watching. At a joint press conference after Trump's speech, Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer thanked federal workers for working a month without pay. Rather than accept credit, Pelosi praised the unity of her caucus. And this is something I want to flag. This was such a beautiful statement, and it gives you a sense of where Pelosi's going next. Pelosi said of Mitch McConnell, he's a professional. So it's painful to see him kowtowing to Trump, saying she said to him, quote, do you just want to abolish the Congress or maybe just the United States Senate? Because that's effectively what you are doing. When asked what his response was, Pelosi said nothing. His response is always nothing. Later, Trump gave no explanation for his capitulation, tweeting, quote, this was in no way a concession. It was taking care of millions of people hurt by the shutdown, adding in 21 days, if no deal is done, it's off to the races. However, some conservatives weren't happy. Conservative commentator Ann Coulter, who was one of the forces behind the whole shutdown, expressed outrage, tweeting, quote, good news for George Herbert Walker Bush. As of today, he is no longer the biggest wimp ever to serve as president of the United States. On Friday evening, Press Secretary Sanders quoted Trump's tweets, saying this was in no way a concession, adding that in 21 days, Trump, quote, is moving from building the wall with or without the Democrats. On Friday, Trump signed a bill to temporarily reopen the government, ending a 35-day shutdown, the longest in the nation's history. Over 1 million government contractors will not be reimbursed for missed pay. Late Friday, in a series of tweets, Pelosi, and this was something, and Pelosi is just on fire, Pelosi said in a series of tweets that Trump, quote, continued efforts to undermine the Mueller probe, and it raises questions, adding, quote, what does Putin have on Trump politically, personally, or financially? So Pelosi was going there Friday night. She also asked, mirroring a statement issued by her office Friday, why the Trump regime, quote, continued to discuss pulling out of NATO, which be, would be a massive victory for Putin. Pelosi also tweeted, quote, Stone's indictment makes clear there was a deliberate coordinated effort by Trump campaign officials to subvert the will of the American people during the 2016 election. These are major statements from somebody who is basically Trump's equal, who's head of Congress, who's head of the House. So she's flat out coming. She's flat out going there. So th that was major in her statement and, and her tweets were amazing. On Saturday, Trump sought to shift the narrative, tweeting, quote, if Roger Stone was indicted for lying to Congress, what about the lying done by Comey, Brennan, Clapper, Lisa Page, and Lover, Baker, and so many others? Trump also sent a series of tweets arguing for his wall, culminating with a video of snippets with Schumer and Pelosi with his new slogan, build a wall and crime will fall. On Saturday, the New York Times compiled a list of more than 100 in-person meetings, phone calls, 
text messages, emails, and private messages on Twitter that Trump and his campaign associates had with Russians during the 2016 election. Remember, Trump said we had nothing to do with Russia during the campaign. Looks like that's not true. And the final story for the week, Gizmodo reported that some of Trump's photos on Facebook and Instagram have been manipulated to make him appear thinner and make his fingers appear slightly longer. So there you have it, folks. The longest list so far. We got to 194 items, Lord help us. The government shutdown is done for now, but maybe not for long. And Trump is closing out the week, threatening his national emergency. Bear with us, folks. We are in the midst of a storm. We will get through to the other side. Until next week, have a good one. Don't forget to leave a rating and share this on social media. Thank you and have a great week.